Today we're in Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5. And we see there that starting with verse 7 through 9, I'll just review this a little bit. This will get us back into the flow of things. That during the end times, the Israelites or the Jewish people are going to be scattered. And again, we're talking about Micah prophecy. There is a short-term prophecy, which is what he's telling the people is going to happen to them if they don't change from their ungodly ways. And he's also a long-term thing, what's going to happen way off in the future. And so he's talking about this, that there will be, <coughs> they will have to suffer this consequences, but it talks about the remnant of Jacob. There's always a remnant there that has been faithful to God, and God recognizes this, and he, through Micah, is able to tell him, yes, no, this is not something that no one can do. There is a remnant. And one of the word pictures that we have here in verse 7, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass. If you think of dew in the morning, there's a freshness. There's a joy to this. This is one of the things that I did not like about Florida. And this is, you know, when you get up in the morning here, and even though it's going to be hot, you open up the door and you're met with a breath of fresh air. You can get a good breath of air there. In Florida, in the summertime, when you open up the door, it's like getting slapped in the face with a wet washcloth. <coughs> There's... <laughs> and so, there, the, the word picture that Micah is using is that word picture that you think of when you get up in the morning, open up the windows or open up the door, and you just have this fresh feeling there. And so God is encouraging them in that way. Okay, we'll continue on then with starting with verse 10. We ended up with verse 9 last Sunday. Verse 10 and 11 of chapter 5. In that day, and in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots. And then he says, I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. So in the last days, the Jews are going to be suffered. There's going to be um, things that are going to happen to them. And, but the Lord is saying that he's, first we see the horses and the chariots are going to be taken away. What aspect of war do horses and chariots bring to you? What part of war is this? Yes. Okay, you have the cavalry, and the cavalry is used for what? Yes. Okay, so we're going forward. This is an offensive action that we have here. And so we have an offensive action, and so God is telling the Jews through Micah, I'm going to take away that offensive 
information or the offensive weapons that you have. But then it says, I will cut off the cities of your land and throw on all your strongholds. What part of war is that? That's defensive, right. This is what helps them to keep from being overrun. And God says that he's going to destroy those also. So he's telling the people what's going to happen to them as they uh, don't, they are not going to, if they don't turn from their wicked ways and turn to him. Then we see in verse 12, and I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no more foretellers of fortunes. Now, they were told not to have, they were not supposed to use diviners or sorcerers and so on. This was part of the, of the commands that they were given way back in Deuteronomy. But they had gone away from this. Now, they had gone through all of this from, they, they wanted leadership, they got leadership, then they weren't happy with the leadership they had, so then God gave them judges, so they had the judges, they weren't happy with that, they wanted to have things like the other nations did around them, so then they got kings, and now we're just about to the end of the kings. The kings are, they were wicked, they led the country in the wrong direction, they didn't lead them toward God, and now the kings were using sorcerers and Ouija boards, their version of the Ouija board and things of that nature, to try and determine what they were supposed to be doing, how they were supposed to rule. And obviously, what was the direction that they were supposed, where were they supposed to get their direction from? God, right. They were supposed to get their direction from God, but they weren't doing this. They were getting their direction from uh, the uh, fortune tellers and the sorcerers and all of these types of individuals. And so since they were doing this, God told them, I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. So we have the aspect that they were having these idols. There were two very common idols that they had. One of these was Baal, Baal worship. Baal was the, theme, uh, was the male god, it was a very powerful figure in their eyes, and so they worshiped Baal. And the other one was Asherah. Now, Asherah is also, when it talks about the pillars, the pillars were the, the idols that pointed to Asherah. Asherah was the female god. And so there was, this brought about the uh, temple prostitution and all of this type of thing, extreme wickedness that was taking place uh, in the temple of God, which was supposed to be a holy place. And so... God says that he is going to destroy those uh, things from them, so they won't be able to depend on that. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 35 through 36, it says, Vengeance is mine and recompense. For the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. 
So we also see here that God is using foreign nations to bring about the punishment on the Jewish people. And so the righteous Jews probably had the idea that they wanted to have vengeance on them. They wanted to throw out the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and so on. But God says, I will take care of that. And this is one of the things that we have to remember. God is the individual. God is the ruler. God will take care of things. Vengeance is mine. And we should just do what God wants us to do, where God has called us. The gifts that God has given us, each one of us has different gifts, different abilities, and we need to use those uh, for his uh, glory. Okay, any comments or questions on chapter 5? Some of the things that we've been discussing. Okay, on to chapter 6. We'll probably get finished with this. Next Sunday will be uh, Micah 7. And then uh, they've asked me, since Micah was a rather short book, to go on and take Nahum also. So we'll continue on in the Minor Prophets and go on to Nahum. Okay, uh, Micah chapter 6. Okay, Micah chapter 6, hear what the Lord says, arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills near your vo- hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against this people, and he will contend with Israel. Okay, so now, again, Micah, just jumping back and forth. You have to follow this rather closely because sometimes he's speaking to the people right now. Other times he's speaking to them what's going to happen way off in the future. Sometimes he is speaking to the nations that are used to punish Israel. And so he is uh, speaking here. In these first two verses of Micah, God is probably speaking to to Micah himself. God is speaking to Micah rather than to the people. And we start out with this here again. He is calling attention to this. And there's three times in the book of Micah that God calls this attention, that we're supposed to hear this. So we have this pattern. What was this pattern that we had that was repeated three different times in the book of Micah. Now, I know that this is review, and everybody hates review. (laughs) So anyway, what was the general pattern? Anyone? Okay. But we see that we go from punishment on to... Glory, punishment on to praise, punishment on to the future. And so here we see this once again, that we have this 
the Lord is telling Micah, we're starting with punishment again. We're going to review this. So hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. What is one of the emotions or the feelings that you have when you see mountains? Peace? Okay. Any other feelings that you have when you see mountains? Okay, you see awe, wonderment. Pardon? Okay, beauty. Beautiful. Okay, all of these things I think are true. And coming from North Dakota, I'll get you Grant in just a bit. Coming from North Dakota where we didn't, the Turtle Mountains are not really very much for mountains. But anyway, as a flatlander, getting out to see the mountains for the first time was really pretty special. So Grant, what were you going to add? Okay. Okay, all right. So this is a rock. Mountains give you this aspect of steadiness. Now, most of our, and you're going to get a little geology here, you expect this. Uh, most of this, uh, the mountains that we have, have some type of a granite core. Now, there are mountains that are not totally granite, but the granite is underneath them, and it is this core that's pushed them on up. Granite comes from the center of the earth. It is the stabilizing part of the earth. And so Micah is using these, or the Lord is telling Micah that plead your case before the mountains. Uh, they are a symbol of stability and, and permanence. And so the, they cannot be moved. Now you may have a hard time convincing the people in Japan right now about that they cannot be moved. Uh, but anyway, because of the fact that they have come up from the center of the earth, there are these areas along there where slippages can still take place. But anyway, he gives us this, that the Lord is telling Micah, you have a firm foundation on which you can base your faith on, just the same way as those mountains are firmly uh, built there and so that you don't have to um, be afraid that, uh, that you can't depend on them. So the mountains are a symbol of stability, permanence that God gives. Now in the verse 3, Micah is now talking, or God is now talking to the people rather than talking to Micah. So from verse 3 through 5, he is talking to the people. Oh, my people. All right. How, how much simpler can it get than that? What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised. And what Balaam the son of Beor answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal. 
that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. So what is the tenor that we have, especially of verses 3 and 4? What is the aspect of these? What's the basic thing that we see behind this? Yes, Eric. Okay, that, you know, and young people aren't going to understand this at all because you've got a console in the front seat of your car, all right? Some of you older ones know where I'm going with this, all right? The wife says, honey, you used to sit right next to me in the car. And he says, well, I haven't moved. You're the one that's moved. <laughs> so anyway, and this is what we have here. God is telling them, you've moved. And it says, you've forgotten what I've done for you. And then he asks the question, have I wearied you? Um, I get back to my relationship with Ruth so on, on many of these things. But we see here that how many times in your marriage or in your family relationship do you just take something kind of for granted? You know, it's been coming and you take it for granted and it's not special anymore. And this is what God is telling the children of Israel. I did something special for you. And then he goes through and enumerates them. But you have forgotten those things. I know that my son-in-law mentioned this when our daughter Michelle was diagnosed with cancer. He says, I just thought about, well, our relationship was getting kind of stale. There wasn't that spark that we had had when we were first married so on, and this has brought this back that I need to be thankful every day for what God has given me. And so Israel is being reminded of this, that they are forgetting what God has done for them. So then he enumerates that. For I have brought you up from the land of Egypt, redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses. Okay, so they went down to Egypt. What was the reason why they went down to Egypt? Why the Israelites went to Egypt? Famine, right. They had a famine in Israel. Egypt was still doing well. See, Egypt was being, uh, was being watered by the Nile River. The Nile River flooded every year and brought in flesh soil flooded the land, plenty of moisture, and so they did not suffer the drought that we see in Israel. Israel can be very dry and difficult land to make a living off of. The Jewish people of today have done a marvelous job of allowing water to be brought 
there of changing desert land into fertile cropland, and they have really done a great job on this. But the Lord is saying here that uh, you've forgotten that I brought you out of this slavery that they had in Egypt. And the Pharaoh that came along after the Pharaohs that allowed them to come into Egypt started treating them as slaves and uh, did a lot of things that made life very difficult for them. Then we also says, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. What's the significance of God mentioning these three individuals? Given them leaders. Leaders are so important. Unfortunately, I'm afraid that there's too many individuals that are in the head of a lot of nations that are not leaders. Or if they are leaders, they're leading the people in the wrong direction. But Moses, Aaron, and Miriam were the leaders that they needed, and God provided them with what they needed. And he will provide us with what we need also. Right now, I need my family, and they are there. God has provided me with them. And so this has been a a tremendous blessing to me. So Jehovah is questioning the attitude that they have. Then he also talks about some of the, gives a couple of situations. Remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. Uh, That story has always been confusing to me because I get Balak and Balaam mixed up. Uh, But what was the general story that we have here? I know I'm taxing your memory again. (sighs) Yes. Okay. All right. Okay. Very well stated. That Balak, king of Moab, wanted Balaam, who was the priest, to curse the Israelites. And Balaam says, okay, I'll do that. So he hopped on his trusty steed and was heading on with to the wherever he was going to curse the Israelites. And uh, the donkey said, uh, you're the donkey. You're, you're the stubborn one on this. <laughs> we, we don't want to do this. And so when the angel came there and showed him, and so Balaam ended up, instead of cursing the Israelites, was going to, he then blessed the Israelites. Then we also see, it says, what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. And so we have this situation where we have when the children of Israel were coming into the land of Canaan, they came up from here. They came up from Egypt, that's down here below the floor someplace, They came on up here, and they came up to 
Shittim, and then they had to cross over the Jordan River. And when the Israelites crossed the Jordan River at that time, it probably was not this small stream. And those of you that have gone to Israel and have seen the River Jordan, it's a very impressive river. It's fairly small. But during the springtime, the, uh, well, actually a little bit later on, when the snows on Mount Hermon start to melt, then the river, Jordan River, fills this area on in. And God allowed for them, he stopped the water, and not only did he stop the water, but he allowed the Israelites to cross on dry land. This was miraculous. The water did not stop until the priests stepped into it. So they stepped into the water someplace out here, they crossed on dry land, they came across to Jericho, and you all know the story about Jericho, marching around Jericho, the city of Jericho, blowing their trumpets, fell down, they were able to capture the city, and then the children of Israel went over to Gilgal. You notice that there's a question mark, so we're not sure just exactly where Gilgal is, but it's somewhere in this area, and that's where the Israelites stayed until God directed them to continue on. And as they continued on, the next place that they tried to capture was Ai and Bethel. And after that tremendous victory that they had at Jericho, they went to Ai and they fell flat on their face because they decided that they were going to do this on their own instead of asking for the Lord's help. But this is what God is talking about here. It talks about from Shittim to Gilgal, is just their crossing over, being able to take care of Jericho, having a place where they could now encamp. And uh, this was quite some encampment that they had, but they were able to stay there until God directed them on into the other areas. Any comments or questions that you have? Okay, as we continue on with verse 8. No, verse 6. My bifocals got in the way again. Uh, Okay, verses 6 and 7. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? So the Lord is speaking again through Micah, and what is, the, what is he asking the children of Israel at this point? Grant? Okay. They've come to worship. Yes, Eric. Okay. All right. He's uh, 
pointing out the lack of repentance. Any other things that you see here? What about the progression of the sacrifices? It starts out with, uh, shall I bow myself before God? Then it says, shall I come with burnt offerings? So a burnt offering would take more finances, more work, so on, than just bowing down before God. This means that you had to purchase or bring some of your own livestock, whether this would be a dove or lambs or whatever it is. The economic condition of the family determined to some extent what type of animal they could bring. So God is pointing this out that, you know, is it good enough for you to bow down or do we need to have a sacrifice of some time? And it talks about a calf, which is a year old. So this would be a significant financial investment. Then he ups the ante a little bit and says, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? So if the calf isn't good enough, how about if you have a thousand rams? And if the thousand rams aren't good enough, then he comes up with ten thousands of rivers of oil. Okay, now this is olive oil that they're talking about. This was a precious commodity. It says, that, will the Lord be pleased with 10,000 rivers of oil. This is a tremendous amount of oil. Probably have to have all of the olives of Israel to be able to do this. Then shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? So we see this progression going from a rather simple and not very expensive thing, which just means to bow down and pray to the Lord and we're going on to something that would be to sacrifice your firstborn, which would be one of the ultimate sacrifices that an would be able to make. And so he is saying, you know, which one of these is better? And I'm putting the question to you. Yes, Flora. Okay. God is saying no matter what they do, they're not going to wash away the sin. Okay, the sacrifice had to be Jesus on the cross, and what is our attitude toward that? We have to accept this. And it's nothing that we can do to be able to get our salvation, but it's what Christ did and our accepting of what Christ did to be our salvation. And so this was before Christ died on the cross, when Micah uh, penned these uh, words, but we still see this, that he is pointing out to the children of Israel. It doesn't make any difference. What you do, if you're doing this type of thing, these sacrifices, with the attitude that you have, they're worthless. They don't get you any place. And so this is one of the things that he is trying to point out. 
So it's not the increase of the sacrifice, the increase of the cost of sacrifice that Yahweh requires us to accept him and to live according to his uh, means. And, and, and that is not, I'm not trying to say that we can earn our salvation by how we live, but we have our salvation because of who Christ is and what he has done for us. Any comments or questions? Yes, Gordy. Right. I know I've done wrong. Mm-hmm. I'm a pretty good person. Right. Kind of this out. Okay. Right. Yes. Right. And so what Gordy is saying for those some of you that are at the back of the room is that people try and make this balance the good against the evil. And yeah, you've you've told some lies. You may have even walked off with something out of the Walmart without paying for it and so on. But, you know, I've also thrown quite a bit of money into the Salvation Army baskets and things like this, and so that should balance those things off. Uh, No, it doesn't. It's what God requires us to accept his sacrifice for our sins. Grant. Okay. All right. Right. Since they were sons of Abraham, they were good enough. They didn't have to do anything else. And so we see that God is pointing this out. It's not what God requires of you. And then, okay, going into verse 8, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to live kind, love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? He's just pointed out this, these sacrifices. And we go on through these various sacrifices, each one of these being more costly than the one before. But then he says, this is not what God requires. What he requires is to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So, what did he want of the children of Israel? He wanted obedience from them, yes. And so, uh, it talks about the, in just in the next verses, it talks about the way in which they were not using justice, in which they were not using justice as being their way of, of uh, going about things. And also the aspect of loving kindness, to joyfully do things and to then to walk humbly with your God so that they would be able to follow God, follow Yahweh in the way that he expects them to.
We continue on then with verse 9. The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is uh, sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Okay, the rod speaks of what? Okay, this is judgment, justice. This is judgment. And so the rod is going to be uh, for judgment. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? So when Jesus came before, well, he came twice to the temple and he looked through the temple and what was his reaction what was happening in the temple that Christ reacted so violently to? Okay, money changers. And so you think money changers. Okay, it was just changing from euros to francs or something like that. See, what is the Israeli... Uh, um, uh, uh, the uh, rubles, isn't it? Rubles? Pardon? Shekels, shekels, yeah. Actually, it's the new shekels now. So anyway, so the money changers were not changing from Egyptian money to, uh, to shekels necessarily. The money changers here were thieves. They were robbing the people. They were pushing you know, the extra change underneath the table all of the time. And so he's, he, in a scant measure, they have the balance scales, and the rulers would have a lightweight and a heavyweight. And depending upon whether they were buying or selling, they would now determine which weight that they would use. So if they were selling, then they would use the lightweight, and it wouldn't take long to get the scale even, and that was what you got, and you, you, you got cheated. And if they were buying, they would use the heavyweight, so they had to give you quite a bit before they balanced. And so this is what Micah thought. This is what your people were doing. This is what the, remember, these are the priests and the rulers of the people. They are doing this type of thing. The scant measure. Shall I quit the man with wicked scales, with a bag of deceitful weights, as we're talking about, that they have different size weights depending upon who they were dealing with. Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. So he is talking to them basically the way that they were handling their, uh, their business and that this business was an abomination to the Lord. Okay, that is about the end of our time, so I didn't quite get through chapter 6, but we'll finish that and see how far we get in chapter 7 next Sunday.